The following program is for informational and educational purposes only. This program does not replace medical, mental health, or psychological diagnosis and treatment prescribed by your personal physician, psychologist, therapist, or other health care provider. Please consult your provider for diagnosis and care before beginning or changing any program or idea discussed. Welcome to Psych Up Live with your host, Dr. Suzanne Phillips. This is the show that brings you a psychological perspective on common and current life issues. Here is Dr. Suzanne Phillips. Hi, folks. Thanks for joining me again on Psych Up Live. Whether you are a seasoned psychoanalyst, a group therapist, or someone interested in how and why psychoanalysis works, Today, you're going to hear from a psychoanalyst who is in the forefront of psychoanalytic thinking and practice, Dr. Robert Grossmark. Dr. Grossmark will be drawing upon his new book, The Unobtrusive Relational Analyst, Explorations in Psychoanalytic Companioning. He'll be discussing his role and technique working with patients formerly considered unsuitable for psychoanalytic treatment. He'll also be discussing his application of this expanded thinking to group therapy. Dr. Grossmark is a psychoanalyst in private practice in New York, working with individuals, groups, and couples. He teaches and supervises everywhere. The New York University Postdoc Program in Psychoanalysis, the National Institute for the Psychotherapies Program in Adult Psychoanalysis, the National Training Program in Psychoanalysis, Eastern Group Psychotherapy Society, and many more. In addition to the unobtrusive relational analyst, he's co-authored other books, The One and the Many and Heterosexual Masculinities. Dr. Grossmark teaches nationally and internationally. Dr. Robert Grossmark, it is my privilege to welcome you to Psych Up Live. Well, thank you so much, Suzanne, and it's, it's a real pleasure to be here, and I, I so appreciate the invitation, and I'm looking forward to talking with you. Okay. You know, um, most psychoanalysts today have moved well beyond the caricature of the original Freudian analyst as blank screen sitting behind the couch with a patient free associating. There have been many evolving models, many of which you draw upon in your book, Relational Object Relations, Psych Self-Psychology, Contemporary yes. Freudian. Yes. You position yourself, Robert, as coming from a relational perspective, can you share with our audience, what does that mean? What's the role of a relational psychoanalyst? Oh, well, certainly that's such a good place to start. Well, as m- many people in the field know, the relational turn um, in, in, in the last 20 years has really transformed psychoanalysis and psychotherapy. I mean, nowadays, rather than seeing the psychoanalyst as outside of what is happening and able to comment and talk from a position almost like a view from nowhere and and somehow being able to speak the truth uh, of what is going on inside the patient. Nowadays, we see the, the whole psychotherapeutic and psychoanalytic endeavor as much more of a co-participant collaborative endeavor. And the analyst really nowadays, and for me personally, I was never comfortable in the idea of abstinence and neutrality. It was kind of like a jacket that didn't quite fit for me. Mm -hmm. Um, 
Nowadays, we, we are able to utilize, to be present as ourselves judiciously and to utilize our own reactions and allow the patient access to what it is that's going on inside of us. So we create a very different kind of atmosphere in the treatment. And I think this has been freeing for so many patients as well as for the analysts and therapists themselves. Mm. Uh, and, and, and I think that's, that's, a, that's a kind of overview there of, of a different positioning of the analyst. But I think also uh, the relational perspective uh, in an important way reconfigured how we think about the unconscious. And that's a very important uh, distinction because sometimes people will talk about relational psychoanalysis and just say, well, I'm relating more and that's it. But that doesn't quite get at it. I, I, I think that a crucial uh, um, shift was in in um, embracing and integrating the literature from trauma theory, which looked at the kind of effects that the mind undergoes when one is, especially as a child, is um, it, it goes through severe or ongoing cumulative trauma. And we've come to appreciate the role of dissociation and the role of different self-states uh, in the makeup of the human being. It's a long story, but I'll... Uh, uh, that, that means that rather than seeing the unconscious as made up of what's repressed, being, being and this is where I get so interested, um, uh, with the old model of the unconscious was very much that one represses what causes conflict, which means that one has a sense of what it is that one has experienced, perhaps uh, an inner representation, and there are conflicting feelings or ideas that lead to repression. Studying trauma has allowed us to see how when uh, a child, for instance, undergoes massive trauma, the actual experience does not get encoded. It, it exists in another realm. So, we- Okay, let, let me stop you there for one minute, Robert, because you've already taken us the next step. Ah. So, the, the rela- so the relational model is very collaborative and and there's a verbal sharing in the here and now which is central to it now you will just let us into why you expanded with the word unobtrusive relational psychoanalyst what what is that how is the unobtrusive relational psychoanalyst different and how does that relate to trauma Oh, thank, thank you. And uh, um, I, I'm sorry, I've taken us a little further. I, I got in the head of myself. That's okay. That's okay. Not very unobtrusive of me. But, uh, <laughs> um, 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 I, I, I think that one of the things that happened after the relational turn was certainly, uh, in many ways, a welcome freedom, a greater freedom on the part of therapists and psychoanalysts to be able to utilize their own experience. Um, and... Um, one of the things that I began to notice was that there were a lot of patients who were not able, to, <coughs> excuse me, to use and utilize what the more relational analyst was giving them. Rather like in, there are patients um, who cannot uh, um, process and think about and use the verbal dimension of experience to understand a more classical kind of interpretation. I think patients like this who struggle with basic issues of self-other differentiation, uh, continuity of the self, what we would might call object constancy and separation, and whose main 
uh, um, difficulties lie in an area due to ongoing trauma and, and developmental trauma. Their difficulties lie in areas that are beyond words and are not processed in terms of language. So I found that talking about my experience or offering my experience sometimes was just speaking another language to certain right. The patients and could be overwhelming or overstimulating, uh, confusing, and that I was looking for a different way to allow patients to really own the treatment themselves, to really um, feel that the treatment was filled with their own way of being and would be directed by their own character, their own idiom, um, and their own uh, dimension of being. And I found that rather than neutrality or abstinence, the idea of being unobtrusive to letting the patient fill the space was, that was a word which I take from um, an analyst from the 50s and 60s, a Hungarian analyst called Michael Ballant. It seemed such a useful and, and contemporary concept of a way to be. Well, one of the things that attracted me so much to your writing is the amount of trauma work I do. So when you wrote things like, with a group of people who never were able to represent in words early trauma, you're valuing nonverbal, motoric, behavioral. You say they're different registers that we have to welcome rather than see as enactments that are negatively interrupting or resistance. I've had patients, I had one gentleman who had been very abused um, as a child who came and Robert, he could not sit down. He sat for one minute and then he paced. The message I was getting, he also drank every bit of water I had in a basket. Uh And the message I got was, if I'm going to tell you something, I really have to also let you know I'm not really here. I couldn't, I feel too much shame to be here, but I have to talk to someone. So his ambivalence and shame, if I use your frame was very, he explained that to me in his walking and yes. his nervousness with the water more than he ever could in words. Yes, no, that's a beautiful example. And, and there is a, a chapter in the book called The Eloquence of Action, which, which is actually a phrase I take from Shakespeare. Um, and, and, and it speaks to, the, the chapter speaks to valuing that kind of presentation because we know that, tra- that, that, that so much childhood trauma is not encoded and processed uh, verbally or representationally, but rather is encoded in terms of the body um, and uh, turns into symptoms and great disruptions in relatedness and in thinking. And so that exactly what you're describing, a patient like that is showing that you, I mean, in a basic motoric way that he's jumping out of his skin, which is yes. the experience of uh, a child who is abused, because we very much value now the centrality of bodily sensation and the body as a, as, as, as a, uh, a place where memory is stored in an inchoate way. And also the drinking is so fascinating because uh, trauma like that leads to a profound sense of undernourishment and depletion. And so I think, you, you know, you, when you talk about, you know, terrible shame, I mean, one can only begin to imagine the kind of shame, but I think uh, the bodily communication 
of depletion and you know, overwhelming sensation. Before affect, there's pure sensation, which is yet to cohere into a recognizable affect. So, so it's a great example, Suzanne, and you must see this kind of thing in your practice so much. And, and the thing with patients is if you are, patients like that, if you were to ask him, I'm imagining, how are you feeling? I mean, you might get a verbal response, but it's very unlikely that those words would capture what you're describing in such a dramatic presentation. So let's use that because you capture the position of the analyst as psychologically companioning. That's one of the dynamics you offer us for conceptualizing what we're doing because often we're sitting there thinking, oh my God, what am I doing? So um, maybe you can talk a little bit about where you came up with the idea of psychological companioning. Yeah, I, I mean, I think once I felt that I needed to be unobtrusive and welcome the full expression in the register that the patient needs to communicate in. And I mean, the fascinating thing here is that the patient doesn't know that they're communicating, right? right. It's no intention. The guy you're describing, it's really a great, helpful example. And in the book, there are examples that are quite similar. Um, you know, I realized that rather than, because so many uh, therapists will orient themselves to bringing the patient into the realm of the verbal to try and say, let's put that into words, rather like one would do with the child, you know, well, use your words. You right. know? And <laughs> remember that. <laughs> um, uh, um, and <clears throat> but the thing is that if the trauma has taken place in this inchoate, motoric, um, bodily, somatic realm, you see, we can say that that's where the trauma took place and that's the dimension in which we have to work. So rather than trying to bring patients out of that zone into a zone which is much more comfortable for many therapists, you know, the, the we can talk about it and have interesting ideas zone, I would lend myself to just um, to flow into the zone that they are in and try and companion them as much as possible in that very register. It doesn't mean that I'm getting up and walking around the room with them, but to, but to surrender uh, to the effect that that is having on me. Because so many times patients are misread as avoiding or as mm. distracting, and really they're crying out in the only language that they know, which is their body. You know, one of the references you make that fits it, I think, so well is you say Winnicott says the mother and the infant can't find each other until they live an experience together and that we have to live an experience with these patients. Absolutely. And, you know, that that is from one of Winnicott's earlier papers when he was trying to pull together uh, his uh, theories from 1945, which is just incredible to think of that, writing in London after the war and so forth. <laughs> My goodness. But he, it's an incredible paper called uh, um, A Primitive Emotional Experience. And exactly, it is something about living through the experience, however uncomfortable and however disorganizing it is with the patient. Because so many patients who suffer like this have never had the experience of anyone being with them in these zones and, and, and knowing them in these zones. And indeed, many have had therapists who very quickly wanted to talk about it 
rather yes. than allow themselves to experience with. You know, um, Robert, I looked up the word companioning, and it I was I was so surprised how relevant. The, the definition is traveling with but not guiding, facing the terrain as it emerges. Yeah. And that is really, when you read your examples, it really is. I mean, I wrote in the book review, some of your examples are like cliffhangers. It's, it's unclear how you're going to continue to travel with the patient. Well, well you know, that's, a, 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 that, that's uh, I'm glad you found it so compelling. I'm very glad. But I, I think that that speaks to one of the essential sort of places that one has to be allowed to sit, which is not knowing. And to not know where this treatment, where this living together is going to take you. And that's a very different stance to working very hard to know what's going on so that I can say something that will give insight. The, 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 the uh, transformation is going to come through the very experience of me going with the patient, as I put it, into the darkness, rather than trying to prematurely pull them out of the darkness. And it's a revelatory experience. And, and really, for the therapist, it's, it's quite transformational as well. You know, I think one of the things you say, and I think we all know, is there are patients who have pockets of this regressed, traumatic pain who can very well talk the talk if we want them to. And so they can, some of them can talk very clearly and we think we're doing the work, but we're really, they're being very good patients, but we're never really getting to the darkness that you're speaking about. We're going to have to take a brief break. I want our listeners to know that you're listening to Dr. Robert Grossmark, psychoanalyst and the author of the new important book, The Unobtrusive an obtrusive relational analyst, explorations in psychoanalytic companioning. Stay with us, much more to come. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. There are many people who claim to be dog experts, yet they don't really provide a connection between dog owners and their best friend. This is where the BS stops. Listen for Taming the Wild and Your Dog with expert author and nationally recognized dog trainer Brian Bailey. Each show has experts, professional trainers, and veterinarians to give you the right answers. Listen for the safety and well-being of your dog. Listen every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you ever experienced the joy of living? Not just aspects of your life, but the true joy of life itself. Barry Shore has. You could call him an ambassador of joy. From a successful entrepreneur to becoming a quadriplegic due to a rare disease to his ongoing recovery through swimming and physical rehabilitation. Barry now presents his gifts to others as host of The Joy of Living. All you need to do is tune in. Listen live every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. 
Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Live Fridays at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. You are listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now, back to Psych Up Live. Welcome back to Psych Up Live. We're speaking with Robert Grossmark. He's a psychoanalyst in New York City and the author of the new book, The Unobtrusive Relational Analyst. And Robert, you mentioned when we were off off the line that you want to share the root of that word companioning because it's so relevant to the actual use of it. Yes, the, the, um, um, because you mentioned traveling together and, and we'll pick that up in a moment, but the but um, the root of the word companion is so interesting because like compassion, which comes, these are all Latin-based words, compassion is, 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 is to suffer with someone. And companion is to break bread with someone, to share bread with someone, coming from pan, bread. Um, so it is such a different idea um, for a therapist to feel that we are doing a, a, a profound an almost ancient kind of a sharing with someone, um, mm-hmm. uh, it puts, places us in a very different position um, in relation to the treatment and to the patient. Okay, let, let's take a look at the next very important vector or dynamic that you speak about, and that is the flow of inactive engagement. You don't see enactments as stopping the narrative. Yes, and, and uh, this picks up a bit of the question about relational psychoanalysis. Uh, uh, relational psychoanalysis focused uh, a great deal and brought to the center of psychoanalytic focus the idea of enactment, you know, that that what has happened, the, the, the dissociated trauma will, will find expression, will come to happen in actuality in the treatment relationship, and it involves the analyst. Um, and now many people viewed that as uh, where we get into impasses, where there's a, a something abrasive or tricky uh, comes to block the, the proceeding of treatment, um, where both analyst and patient cannot think together. And certainly there's a lot to be said, a lot to be said for that kind of situation. And I think often in those situations, the analysts can share some of where they are and how they came to be there as far as they understand. And that can be freeing to free up what has been dissociated. I take a different angle or, or, or try and add a different angle um, on enactment, which I feel that there, in enactment, there's a kind of narration that goes on, that the patient, with, together with the analyst, they find, we find ourselves living a story that has yet to have shape 
in the patient's mind. And it's almost an uncanny experience. And it happens in, in individual therapy. And we'll mention later, it certainly happens in group treatment where the group comes to almost enact the original trauma or variations mm-hmm. of a family dynamic. So I view enactment as something to be embraced, not to be undone, but to really be unobtrusive to the full expression, and I call it the flow of inactive engagement, to allow it to flow and, as it were, to speak, allowing the trauma to speak in the lived experience with the the therapist or the analyst. Often, mm-hmm. it's very uncomfortable, and you find yourself living in spaces, sometimes they're quite defined and you find yourself being the bystander or the voyeur or the abuser yourself and it's very painful. But sometimes it's actually on the level of states of consciousness and one can find oneself swimming in an area, a kind of altered state of timelessness or spacelessness or disorientation. I mean, it's so common that an an analyst or a therapist will lose track of time in a session or one session will seem to pass in five minutes and the next session will seem to take 30 years, you know? Um, Well, one of the gifts of your book is helping us regulate our anxiety when that happens um, so that we, we don't have this urge to jump in in the very next session and make meaning and ask for what do you think is going on so that, I mean, you're really inviting us to hang in there and watch the, and it's our next topic, the co-narration unfold. Yes, and that's an important thing you say, Suzanne, because um, I, I mean, I think and, and there's an ongoing and really stimulating discussion in the field about the role of when we speak and when we formulate things in language and when we let things be. Um, and, and it's a really wonderful conversation. <coughs> I think that a too quick jump to say what's going on around here can only ask the patient to shift from the zone of which you described in your patient of the motoric into the zone of the cognitive of the more organized the more formulated there are times when that's going to serve a very important containing function but there are also times when it when that can only serve to suppress and maybe even shame the part of the patient that can only express themselves in these inchoate uh, motoric somatic ways or in the enact the enactment is almost like a language or a currency and if that's the only way that the trauma can speak if you too quickly go to understand it and say what's going on around here or you make an interpretation you're going to lose and perhaps shame the very expression of the trauma mm-hmm. so one of the things that you talk about which I think became so powerful when I read it, is the idea that this is that the story is going to emerge. I've had patients who will not share the story, let's say, of the trauma, but would send me glimpses of it, Robert, in an yep. email, um, at, which I would read and then wait, and then only if they said, did you read what I wrote? And for some, and I I mentioned this in a program I did for the Suffolk Institute, there was, they had no access to the memories of the horrific series of trauma they had endured 
until they wrote a little bit and then it did a kind of experiential thing with me in the session. And this took months until the story shocked them. Yes. Their own story shocked them. And it fits in a little bit with when you say, yes. you know, there has to be a teller and a told for a yes. story to exist. Yes. I, I, it sounds like wonderful work. Um, um, I, I, I think... Let me mention a couple of additions to what you're saying. You see, sure. we do focus a lot on trauma, which is the, the, the trauma of terrible things that have happened. But I'm also so interested, and there's less literature on neglect mm-hmm. and on recognition, because you can't point to something that's not there. Right. You know, child, the children who are uh, whose needs are never seen, let alone met. Therefore, there's no... And, and you only come to um, formulate and, and represent in your own mind your own needs as an infant when you are in a situation where they are being met. If they're not meeting, if, if they're not being met, then there's very little chance for them to become whole. So often, and I, the example in, 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 in the first chapter of my book, um, I have a patient who, uh, obviously all my patients, are, their identities are disguised very heavily um, a patient I call Kyle comes in for his first session and um, he does what he thinks is sit on my couch. But from my perspective, it was he stood in front of the couch, a very tall, lanky young man, and um, it was as if his knees gave way, as if someone had whacked him in the back of the knees with the pole and he just fell onto the couch. And interestingly enough, in my stomach, I had a feeling I hadn't had in a long time, which was when my kid, when my kids were little and we would go to the park and they would play on the jungle, and I would get that. Every dad and mom knows this feeling of, oh, my God, they're going to fall. And you get that sinking feeling in the depth of your stomach. Um, and now he had not communicated, basically, with barely just even said hello. But he had communicated something that he couldn't possibly know, which was that he had fallen. And that his earliest experiences, I later pulled together, that he fell out of his mother's mind. The mother was very depressed and very disorganized when he was an infant, tremendously so. And um, that there, so that his body to my body had, had communicated something that he couldn't possibly know in words. Hmm. That kind of phenomena that I'm so interested in. And notice how it is relational in that there's my body is part of the co-narration. I, I should, I, so I, I'm... I didn't say the word. It's an inactive co-narration with no intention because you can't sort of contrive this. You find yourself living out these complex dimensions of someone's trauma and neglect, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, and one of the things I think you say that someone comes into being as a person when they share a narrative with another person, much like the infant and the mother come to know each other through verbal and nonverbal attunement. It's like he comes into being with yes. you. Yes, yes. And, and he, he was a person who in many areas, you know, because patients like this present with so many presenting symptoms. There were addictions, there was impulsive behavior, and so many treatments are going to take those as the be, the, the be all and end all of what the problem is and are not going to take the time and allow the space to learn what is the state of being, the state of consciousness that is so different and that he 
it turned out, had grown up feeling in this world of non-recognition, of believing that he didn't exist, Mm -hmm. that he would constantly feel, and it's not an uncommon childhood fantasy, um, um, that he was living in someone else's dream and that when that person would wake up, he would be gone and the whole world would be gone. So it was a degree of almost psychosis of not existing. And that comes, we cannot take with our patients um, the existence of a self, uh, um, the existence of time and the existence and continuity and, and, and coherence of one's own body and mind over time. And those are the levels that it's so easy to miss but they often underlie so much of the pathology that we see and that's going to manifest as sexual compulsion, addictive behaviors, uh, 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 impulse disorders, depression, and so forth. So we, we might ask, just as you share about Kyle, Kyle comes in with a basket full of pain, addictions, and symptoms. Mm-hmm. But something about your perspective now as an unobtrusive relational analyst is to notice on some level him fall off the couch. And so how do we help analysts take a look at that or have a sensitivity to that? Because we're all trained to take a look at almost everything. It's hard to know where to start and how to make that kind of exquisite focus possible. Oh, yes. And, you know, that reminds me of your question about being manipulated, narcissistic manipulation, right? How do we make these um, complex clinical uh, decisions as we go along? I mean, I think uh, uh, um, how, do, how do we help analysts be receptive? I, I think it's about uh, learning a different kind of recept- form of receptivity. And uh, Christopher Bolas, the famous psychoanalyst, talks about the receptive unconscious and uh, the late Emmanuel Ghent, one of the uh, four fathers of relational psychoanalysis, talked about the value of surrender. And um, I think that, again, it is coming with an attitude which isn't to very quickly know what's going on, even though that's where we as analysts are going to be most comfortable, but to allow ourselves, as it were, into the darkness, to prioritize the patient's experiential world, however contorted, fragmented, strange, and downright strange it, it might be, but to value um, and lend ourselves to that. Um, and it makes, I find actually that it makes life extremely interesting. Um, well, we, I would sometimes say to my doctoral students, they're not coming for what they can tell you about. They're coming for what they can't tell you about. Oh, that's beautiful. That's right. It's, and it mirrors exactly what I say. Uh, uh, it's not what we know that gets us into trouble. It's what we don't know about ourselves. And, uh, you know, that's a, these, these are messages that I think are really uh, clear and they're wonderful in their clarity. And, you know, when I was working in the South Bronx in public health clinic, in the 80s with crack and HIV AIDS and so forth and would talk like this with my patients, they had no problem understanding what I was talking about, right? You know, mm-hmm. who can't understand the unconscious when you put it in very uh, uh, accessible terms? Well, one of the things I, I, I think relevant to this section is your important comment that stories are made, they're not found. Yes, 
You know, as humans, we seek others with whom to make the narrative. They don't come in with the narrative. Just as your person who was so neglected, there was no mutual narrative with that parent. Yes, and that that I, I take some of that from Jerome Bruner, the the, the marvelous uh, um, cognitive psychologist who wrote on so many different topics. But uh, um, in fact, and some of the quotes I use from him came from a book he wrote about law, um, as it happens. He was a polymath, really. But um, yeah, stories, and that's the thing. We're not looking to uncover, almost like an archaeologist, uh, the woolly mammoth that is intact but fossilized. Um, we have much more of a constructivist and hermeneutic approach that the, 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 the truth will emerge. Um, psycho, psychic, psychological truth is an emergent property. It's not something that exists and is waiting to be uncovered. Um, just like the, the current view, the transference is not an old relationship that gets replayed, but it's really the finding of a, a relationship that was yet to happen in mm-hmm treatment right we're you know when we come back we're going to take a break we're going to be talking about and here's your quote it is not therapy in group it is therapy by the group and in in a funny way you know at, at american group psychotherapy association we tease each other by say by saying every group therapist gets the group they deserve but actually, but actually, we really are going to see how these same concepts get translated into a group process. You've been listening to Psych Up Live, and we are fortunate enough to have with us Dr. Robert Grossmark. He's a psychoanalyst in private practice in New York City, and his new book, The Unobtrusive Relational Analyst, Explorations in Psychoanalytic Companioning. Stay with us. Much more to come. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Want an insider's pass to everything that goes on in Hollywood? Join Summer Helene every week for Behind the Scenes. Summer Helene is known as the Duchess of Hollywood because she knows the insiders, legends, and celebs and brings the stories, the gossip, and the backstage scoop. It's the real Hollywood, though. So this program is for adults only. Behind the Scenes can be heard live every Friday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time and 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. There are many innocent people who were found guilty of crimes that they did not commit. Join criminal defense investigator Jeff Stein for Is There Really Truth and Justice for All? Each show, we'll discuss the problem, and it is a problem. The fact that because of incompetent investigations and a poor judicial system, anybody can become a victim. Can we fix this? Tune in to find out. You can listen Wednesdays at 11 a.m. Eastern Time and 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts. We'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. 
Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now, back to Psych Up Live. Welcome back, folks. We're speaking with Dr. Robert Grossmark, and we're going to speak now about the application of the unobtrusive relational group analyst. So, Robert, let's talk about the edge of chaos. You say, or you describe group as a process that teeters on the edge of chaos, but ultimately makes relatedness and reflective thinking possible. Tell us about this. Well, um, um, first I should say that I'm I'm very proud, uh, as you are, I think, to be both a psychoanalyst, psychotherapist, and and a group analyst. Um, There's been such an unfortunate bifurcation between the group field Mm -hmm. analysis and psychoanalysis, and um, I'm so proud that I have three chapters in the book about my group work. Um, I've always done work uh, with groups, always had group therapy and various... um, 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 clinics and hospitals and so forth where I've worked and also in my practice. And uh, as you know, as a group therapist and as all the group therapists out there know, it's the most challenging thing one does in one's week, but it's, you know, it's the most uh, exciting when yes. it's, it's the absolutely, you, you float home because you feel so uh, uh, invigorated. And when it's tough and you're stuck in difficult enactments, it is the hardest thing you're going to do. Um, but I want to encourage everyone <laughs> to hang with it. Yes, now, yes. The, the, the edge of chaos. I mean, this picks up a, what we're saying about enactment, because I do feel that this process of the rendition, or I like to call it the incarnation of trauma and early object relations, early familial relations in the treatment is one of the main ways to sort of hinge on which healing in group works so that, and I even tell patients who come to group that, you know, what they can expect is that if it's not there, it will be in here. That when we find ourselves living through the chaos, the mental challenge, mental chaos of their upbringing, of trauma, of neglect, uh, of this disorganization, it's not a bad thing. It's that we're doing the work because the thing is that in group, rather than let things just play out and re-traumatize as they tend to in people's lives, you know, people who've had the same dysfunctional relationship time and again, who've had the same abusive relationship time and again in personal relations at work and so forth, when it happens in group, and believe me, it um, in an uncanny way, it always happens. People will come, the whole group will come to almost play roles as if in a scripted drama of mm-hmm. the abusive sibling or the uh, neglectful parent. Um, it's uncanny how it happens. But then, and not ex- and the, the edge of chaos is, is, is an interesting concept because it comes from chaos theory, nonlinear dynamic th- systems theory. When a system is perturbed, we can't expect things to proceed in a nice linear 
fashion where everything will sort of in a sequential way add up. It much more is a non-linear system and the and group therapy is such a good example of that. But the thing is like just like where I'm more in individual work, I'm so interested to enter into the darkness because if they are known in those difficult states, in group, I'm much more likely, first of all, I situate myself within the group. Suddenly, I talk about all my thoughts. And thoughts. Robert, could you please talk more closer to your mic? We're having oh, a hard time. Okay, sorry. Um, 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 I, I, I would like, I, I want to position myself in the group rather than outside of the group where I can comment on it as if from a neutral position. Mm-hmm. I know that I'm involved as well, and every group therapist knows this, that you go through an emotional tsunami during some groups. Um, and that means you're in the work. I'm always interested in that living together, the experience. And rather than it, as it happens in real life, it becomes a, a re-traumatization. The beautiful thing in group is that everyone is there to do the work with a serious emotional buy-in to figure it out together. And rather than me stopping when things begin to feel intense between people, I will obviously not let things get out of hand. And I'm very rigorous around boundaries and so forth. Rigorous because you need a safe frame in order for this to happen. But you find people living through the most excruciating trauma. And I give examples in the group of uh, a living out of a trauma of sexual abuse and I give examples of living out the trauma of, a, of growing up with a psychotic mother who was hallucinating and never seeing the patient as a human being. Mm. Um, and how both of them came to be enacted in the group. And these were both stories that the patients in question could tell you about in a kind of disconnected way. But it was the living through and trying to stay close to that edge of chaos where it feels painful, challenging, disruptive, but that's where the healing and the transformation comes to be. And that's where the group functions as the told, if you like, so that when a person can take the, 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 these, these sensations and feelings that dominate them and destroy relationships and have them withdrawn and depressed, and they can actually have them be known by other civilians in the group, it's so powerful, Um, then they become a narrative. And once you have a narrative, you have a history, and then something can begin to be in the past rather than continually relived in the present, which is the curse of trauma. Mm -hmm. um, Robert, can you define the concept, because it's in here somewhere, of the self-states? Because often you allude to the fact that the group is on the edge of chaos. They are reenacting quite possibly someone's trauma or what's become now everyone's trauma as they all enter into it. And the importance of now the group lead is involved also, totally lost in the total experience, but the group leader has their eye on opening a small space for mentalization. Could you describe that process? Yes, I, I think it's really important. One of the contributions of the relational field, um, largely coming from people like Donald Stern and Philip Bromberg, um, and certainly others, but 
um, is is the idea of different self states, and it's a very helpful idea, and it certainly relates to trauma um, and dissociation. But we're all comprised of of different self states. Uh, in the most ordinary run of things, we have our our home life and our work life, and different states of consciousness. And uh, health involves not having only one state, but having multiple, being a multiple person and being able to comfortably glide between states rather like uh, being able to move across an archipelago to different islands and form a unity out of them. It's when pieces of you, different self-states get dissociated, get cut off, that that's when one is in trouble. And when there's massive trauma, you find whole parts of the self that are inaccessible and are sequestered. Um, so the analyst who, who is going to companion the group, or as the group analyst, you'll find yourself pulled into these troubling situations. And as I said earlier, it can be so disruptive. But the thing is that we model and uh, we also are in our role. As we get pulled into these altered states, we are also have available to us our other selves, our professional self, our psychotherapy, our psychoanalyst self, who can keep, um, I can keep my arm around me as I get pulled into the tsunami of a group. There's also a me who is there and who's, I'm well tethered um, so that I can be in, mu- in a multiple states at the same time. That's the very thing that people who are living with ongoing trauma and neglect can't do. Everything becomes a totality, and that's when you get these terrible disruptions in relatedness and in functioning. So, um, to me, I give the how does one do that? I give the example of of, of when I do yoga, which I try and keep up, not always successfully. Mm-hmm. But if you know people out there who do yoga, when you're in one of those poses that really stretch you, you if you're really into it. Every cell in your body, every muscle is engaged in an extraordinary degree of control. And the experience is one of being totally letting go, almost flying. You can feel that you are absolutely transcendent. And it's that experience of both and at the same time being pulled in and allowing yourself to go into the darkness. And at the same time, it's a very, like a great artist, I think, you know, who can have such creativity, a great improvisational jazz player, but has total control at the same time. So it's something in that realm, which, as I say, it is a kind of creative realm that, I, that, 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 that one can really work effectively and offer the group a very solid base and a very solid holding which can allow them to engage in these really challenging interactions and it's an amazing thing when people will get up the courage to tell each other that you hurt me or that I, or that I'm fond of you people who are terrified of others but you know this as a group well one of the things that fits in is not only as you're saying to believe that you can be totally immersed and yet have have the ability to reflect on some level on what's going on. Um, although your examples are wonderful because at one point you're saying, oh my God, how did I make this happen? <laughs> Which is what we all do. But also if you can hang on, you then are able to trust that in almost all cases, that group comes through. As you say, the therapies by the group, you almost have to believe in that group of people and that somehow there's yeah. going to be a voice that's going to make a difference. 
and, and, and think how powerful a message, message that is, even if it's not said explicitly. And sometimes in, in, in cha- really challenging situations, I'm not afraid to be very encouraging and to tell the group that we are in trauma and that we will hold on and mm-hmm. think this out and encourage and hold. And they need to know, I think the group in those situations needs to know my mind so that I'm not playing um, a game of neutrality, you know, or mystifying something, but I'm very clear what our task is. But I think, think how powerful a message that is to an yes. patient or a group, that I know that we can make it. And that's exactly the kind of message that people didn't get when, I don't know, when the alcoholic father started beating up the children and breaking the furniture and the mother was just paralyzed with totally understandable terror. There's no one to say to the kids, we're going to make it and you're going to be okay. So it's very powerful. It is. It's beautiful. So in the interest of time, I'm going to ask you to share a very quick take-home message to all our listeners out there, both professional and lay people who have learned so much from you today. What take-home message would you like to share? Oh, my. I, I, I think the thing that's coming to me is, is really that, um, you know, uh, we, we can't make it on our own in life, that you need an other, um, someone with whom you can make your experience real and make, and out of that realness comes meaning, you know, and out of yes. meaning comes sequence and comes uh, hope and even ambition and striving, you know, but we need an other and uh, sometimes we're fortunate to have that in our families and our friends Sometimes we need to find it elsewhere, and I hope that that's what some people who've struggled with tremendous uh, trauma and deprivation find when they come to, 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 to treatment, either individual or group. Great. So now, Robert, how could our listeners find your book, your new book, and your other material? Well, everyone has to buy at least three or four copies of the book. <laughs> okay. I wanted to say. Um, um, certainly Amazon. Uh, is is you'll find it <coughs> just look on Amazon or you can just uh, put, type my name in um, or I have a, a my author page on Amazon um, for the for the people who want to be more particular you could go to the publisher website the Routledge website um, although because I want to support independent bookstores the very best thing to do is to go to your independent local okay. bookstore and ask them to order it for you. Okay. I want to thank you again, um, Dr. Grossmark, for joining us and sharing your important contributions. It goes without saying the book is wonderful, and I encourage I encourage our listeners to get it. I want to thank our listeners. Remember, you can hear this and any prior show as a podcast. This will be a podcast tonight by 6 p.m. on my host site, on the podcast app of your iPhone, on iTunes, on the Voice America Psych Up Live um, podcast site. Please drop me a comment or a question at radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Mostly until next week, take care, thanks, and be listening. Thank you for tuning in to Psych Up Live. Please join Dr. Suzanne Phillips for another edition of our programming next Thursday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Until then, be well and be listening.